Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Brian Selznick is the author of Big Tree. He began his career as a bookseller at Eeyore's Books for Children in New York City. Oh my gosh, I totally remember that store. I loved it. Oh, I should have talked to him about this. And he has worked as a puppeteer and a set designer. His books have sold millions of copies, garnered countless awards worldwide, and have been translated into more than 35 languages. He broke open the novel form with his innovative and genre-defying thematic trilogy, beginning with the Caldecott Medal-winning number one New York Times bestseller, The Invention of Hugo Cabret, adapted into Martin Scorsese. Academy Award-winning movie, Hugo. He followed that with the number one New York Times bestseller, Wonderstruck, which was adapted into the eponymous movie by celebrated filmmaker Todd Haynes with a screenplay by Selznick and the New York Times bestseller, The Marvels. 
Selznick's two most recent books for young people, Baby Monkey, Private Eye, co-written with his husband, David Serlin. By the way, that is like one of my kids' favorite books ever. And Kaleidoscope, a New York Times notable children's book of 2021, were both New York Times bestsellers. He has also illustrated the 20th anniversary edition covers of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. And in praising his body of work, the Washington Post says, Brian Selznick proves to be that rare creator capable of following one masterpiece with another. Not surprisingly, when Big Tree came out, it also hit the bestseller list. Enjoy. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your latest Big Tree. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. You are like such a genius. I don't even know what to say. This book is amazing. <laughs> How you put yourself in the point of view of a seed and make us care and love. And I felt like crying and like mm-hmm. it, it, how you have us see the whole world and like the system of communication and what it means and what monsters are. It's just amazing. And the illustration, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it's so unique and so amazing, like all of your work, but still, this is particularly powerful and awesome. Oh, thank you so much. I, I That really means a lot. And it was very challenging figuring out how to tell a story about nature from nature's point of view, about two little seeds and how to make us really be able to relate to it. But I, I think at a certain point, I realized that we all feel tiny and helpless and unable to do anything in a world that feels very much out of our control. And I write books about kids who have often been separated from their parents for various reasons and are themselves trying to find a safe place to to grow up. And so I I think I eventually realized that there actually isn't any difference between Merwin and Louise, who are seeds, you know, with any of the other, you know, human characters who I've written. Oh my gosh. Why why this theme? Like, where does that come from in you personally? So, I mean, it's funny, like, I mean, I've always loved nature. You know, I grew up in suburban New Jersey and there was a little area of of like woods right behind our house that hadn't been turned into a development yet. And so I remember like crossing the threshold from my backyard, which is very manicured, into the wildness of the woods and like how everything changed, the sound changed, the smell changed, the feeling in the air changed, was very mysterious, a little dangerous. I didn't know if there were wild animals or jaguars around. And you know, and eventually that got torn down and, you know, built into other houses. But it wasn't I, this. I mean, this whole book started because I got a call from Steven Spielberg. And and so it's like the most it's like the most unexpected, weird journey for any book I've ever made in so many ways, because usually like I have something on my mind that I very much want to figure out how to write a story about whether it's French silent movies, which became Hugo or deaf culture and the history of museums, which became Wonderstruck, London theater, which became the Marvels. Like, but this, like this time it was someone else literally planting a seed and, it, and that someone else was Steven Spielberg. So, you know, he, he called me like seven, six or seven years ago. And he had this idea. He wanted me to write a movie for him. And I flew to California. He turned out he was a huge fan of Hugo. And he asked me to write a movie for him about nature from nature's point of view, because he realized that he had never seen a movie like that, that that he had never seen a movie where the main characters were plants. And I wondered, thought to myself, well, there might be a reason, you know, that we've never seen <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, I spent a couple of years working with him and the co-producer Chris Melodandry on a screenplay for what would have been a big animated movie. And I came up with these characters, this story, this time period. It's set sort of a little surprise at the beginning, because at first we think it's set today in a forest. And eventually, pretty quickly, we discovered that it's actually set at the end of the Cretaceous era, right before the asteroid hits the planet and destroys most life on Earth. So, So the planet's under an existential threat. And these two little seeds, you know, I decided we're going to have to find a safe place to grow and try to figure out how they were going to save the world. And that felt like a good parallel for what was happening today without the existential threat towards, you know, our planet and how we feel, you know, tiny and helpless. And sometimes we feel like we're wrapped in a blanket on a sick day at home, you know, and... And we just wanted, we don't quite know where to be or what to do. You know, we, we all feel like that sometimes. And so I, I I worked on this with them until the pandemic hit. And in the pandemic, it became clear for various reasons that this movie was just never going to get made. And by that point, I had really fallen in love with the characters and the story so I proposed to Mr. Spielberg that they give me the rights to the story mm. and let me turn it into a book. And so so this, this book that you have there, I have a copy here, is the outcome of that request. And in, and in a funny way, even though it was actually meant to be a movie, and we never could have imagined the pandemic would happen, um, I feel now that the story actually was always meant to be a book that, that, because when it was a movie, I wasn't doing any art. Like it was going to be professional animators. And we were like trying to figure out like where the faces were going to go on the seeds. Cause we all thought you needed to have faces on characters in a movie. But when I started doing the book, I realized the reason that, and the, the character designs never quite work with faces it was because seeds don't have faces. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, for the story, I had made a rule for myself that everything would have to be based in science. So plants can, actually can communicate with each other. So having the characters talk is fine, but trees can't like get up and walk around on their roots. So I wouldn't have that. That's why I needed like seeds to be the main characters because they can actually move around and have some, you know, volition. And then I just realized, oh, the pictures need to have the same rule and seeds don't have faces. So the seeds in the book don't have faces. I don't know. It's just like a very unexpected discovery that this story should be a book. And so I'm really glad I got the chance to to do that. Oh my gosh. Well, it doesn't matter that they don't have faces. Like you still relate so much because of their thoughts and feelings and their journeys and just, yeah. And even like seeing the dinosaur underneath and realizing, like you said, I was like, oh my gosh, like, oh, it's a dinosaur. It's just, it's amazing. And even the loss of the mom. I mean, I know this happens really early. I feel like I'm not giving much away, right? Yeah. I could take this out if you don't want me to say it, but I don't know, <laughs> like feelings of loss and like banding together. It's just so, it's so beautiful. It's amazing. Thank you. A friend of mine who's a mom always, always said to me that what she thinks a good parent gives her children is roots and wings. And, you know, roots to know that they have a family and and, and a system where they're safe, yep. but wings to fly out into the world and, and discover who they are. Yep. And so when I started writing this book, I knew I wanted to 
use that because it would be the literally the perfect thing for a tree to actually say you know ultimately right seeds have to leave their mama tree and head off into the world to grow yep. and you know i don't have kids but i understand that you know one of the things you hope to do as a parent is to be able to raise someone who can go out into the world and have a good life and that's challenging because you want to protect them and be able to, you know, stop bad things from happening to them. But at a certain point, right, we all need to go out into the world and uh, make our way. But we can do it, I think, perhaps more securely if we know that we come from a family that supports us and a good system of roots. And then we can really, you know, use use the wings we we hopefully have been given. And the sibling relationship, too. I mean, I think a lot of parents, I don't know, do you have siblings yourself? I do. I'm the oldest of three. Oh, okay. So you must feel like that protective instinct about your siblings. I'm the oldest too. And like, I don't know, yeah. I'm always like, I always feel that even though we're old now, you know, like, <laughs> like I'm sure he doesn't want my protection, you know, he's like a 47 year old man, you know, but inside, inside, I can't let that go no matter what. So yeah. I think this is the first time I've ever actually written about siblings because most of my kids are either only kids or orphans and they and they make families around them like that like my books are very much about how we make our own family ultimately and you know we we bring people to us who we love and who we want to be around who who uh, we can support and who can support us and uh you know but this was this was really interesting to start to write about or imagine writing about a sibling relationship and i think i also kind of like ultimately discovered that the two they have very different personalities you know as siblings often do and merwin who's even though they're essentially the same age merwin kind of acts as the older brother yep. and he's very bossy and very secure in his knowledge that he's right and very rigid and his little sister, Louise, is very dreamy and poetic and kind of hears voices and talks to the stars in her dreams. And uh, But she's the one who begins to like understand that there might be a bigger purpose than just finding a safe place to grow, that maybe they have a larger thing that they need to, to do. And after I finished the book, someone asked me who these characters were based on, because people always want to know, like, who is that really? Like, who, who in your life inspired these characters? And for me, the answer keeps on being like, they're all me. Like, it's all me. Like, I, I can't say I'm conscious of that when I'm writing, but I'm like, oh, like one side of me is like super rigid and wants to control everything around me. And that's the side that like my husband gets mad at me about and like <laughs> causes me to have fights with people, you know, but then the other side is like that dreamy kind of, you know, curious part that is creative and wants to connect to the bigger world and is very fluid and is much more able to listen. And, you know, but those are, those are two sides and maybe there are two sides of all of us in different ways, but the balance shifts depending on who we are and how much therapy we've had, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like that tension is very much, I think it's very, it's a very human tension. And, and I, and as I've thought about it, I'm very aware that I am trying to allow Louise to outweigh Merwin, which is what ultimately, you know, is, is a big part of the story of, of Big Tree. I feel like this should be a New Yorker cartoon where like you see the balance and then you see the <laughs> therapy sessions and then they walk out like, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh, so funny. But you also in Big Tree, you still raise questions of 
you know, they're all these hardworking scientists, but if they don't have the right perspective, it doesn't matter how much they're aware and all the results. And what does it mean if you're so studying, but you don't even realize you're underwater? Like if you're so myopic, then you're not going to be able to take in everything and help anything, yeah. which is yeah, so there's- interesting. Yeah, there's these these characters, the scientists in the book are are little tiny creatures that uh, Merwin and Louise meet when they get stuck underwater after a various series of various series of other adventures. And these 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 little scientists are are based on real creatures called foraminifera that are almost microscopic. The biggest ones are about the size of a grain of sand. And they're in all the water everywhere for all time. They've always been in the water. And when they die, their little tiny shells fossilize and capture the carbon from the atmosphere. And when scientists find these almost microscopic fossils from millions and billions of years ago, in the fossil of the foraminifera, they can see what the carbon level was at the time that they died. And that's actually how we know about climate change. So I turned these foraminifera into these characters, these funny little characters called scientists whose entire job underwater is recording data. And the foraminifera, the scientists that Merwin and Louise meet, are kind of working for this mad king. And he's a piece of seaweed who, who thinks he's, you know, like in charge of everything and he knows everything. And everything, everything he interprets is incorrect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's never been out of the water, so he doesn't believe that land even exists. He's heard about it. It's like a fairy tale. And so therefore he thinks Merwin and Louise don't exist, even though they're standing in front of him. You know, he decides they're imaginary and he always wanted imaginary friends. And so he like captures them in this seashell. And so he's this kind of like mad king of, you know, Bavaria, like Ludwig, and he's just wrong about everything. And the scientists are saying that they're capturing all this information for essentially for him. And Merwin at one point says, you know, sort of what you were saying, which is, what's the point? Like if you're if your data isn't being interpreted correctly, what's the point of collecting the data? And and the point that they make is what's important is getting it right. Mm-hmm. And we can't control how other people interpret it. And our hope is that one day, because they, in in my story, like they purposefully inscribe the information on their bodies, all the, all the information that they've gathered, but it's, you know, sort of inspired by the idea of the carbon that's captured in their bodies. And they say like, we, we trust that one day scientists, other scientists will come along who interpret our data correctly. And we, and so for them in the future, we need to get everything right. And that's us. They don't know it, but they're talking about us. And because they did their jobs well, we are able to benefit from it. And that seemed like something that made sense for, <laughs> for the world today and from various angles. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I mean, this whole thing, like, it gives me chills. Just mm. how it all links to today. And oh, good. like all the big meanings behind it. It's really amazing. So are you not upset at all that it's not a movie? Do you feel like this is way better because now you got to do the book? Like, are you a little bit sad? <laughs> no, it's so Not funny. Like, like I, like what made me sad, <laughs> I was about to say what made me sad was the pandemic as if like that was a shocking piece of news, right? Like we were all so devastated by the shutdown and all of our lives changed in ways we never, ever imagined it, it could. The world changed in ways we never imagined it could. We're still obviously dealing with all of the ramifications of that. The world is still in great upheaval, uh, which we feel every single day. And I often just look at ourselves and think like, how does, how does, how does any of us get through a day? Like it is, you know, uh, luckily right now we are able to make pretend that some things are normal, which is great, you know, (laughs) but, but it's helpful to get through the day. But like, you know, we all know nothing is normal. And uh, and also maybe it calls into question the idea that the fact that we thought things were normal earlier right. is also a problem, right? A lot yeah. of things that we thought were normal, it's actually really good to recognize are in fact not normal. And so like that, that sense of the, the, the upheaval and the devastation is what was so like, you know, like all of us is what I was dealing with. And so the fact that there's a book now, like a physical object that we can all look at and and open and read, we can listen to the audio version of it. Like it, like the fact that this story has gotten out there because I wanted it to, right? Like, like I was told this movie isn't going to happen. It was nothing was going to happen. And I got the idea to keep it alive, to make it a book. And I made it happen. You know, I mean, Mr. Spielberg gave me the permission and encouraged me and loved the the outcome. You know, he asked to see the book when it was finished. He didn't, he didn't ask for input as I was making the book. But, you know, when I finished, I sent it to him and the co-producer, Chris Melodandry, and they called me on the phone to tell me how much they loved it. And that's a really nice feeling. And so... No, the only thing I feel when I think about Big Tree is joy and gratitude that it exists. Do you feel like it's more for kids, for grownups, or just for everybody? Because, like, mm. as a grownup, I love, like, I feel like this was still for me. You know, like, Good. I got so much out of it. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm very proud when I say that I write and illustrate books for children. Like I love being a children's book writer and illustrator. I do a lot of things. I write screenplays and I'm working on shows and other things. I'm a puppeteer, but I always 
lead by saying I'm a writer and illustrator of children's books. So, so I'm very conscious of the fact that my audience is kids and they're the best audience you could ask for. But I also really love when people who are not kids tell me that they've read my books and love them and relate to them and have shared them. And, and that makes me very happy because ultimately like I'm not actually writing my books for kids. Like I'm really just writing my books for myself. <laughs> I mean, I'm aware that like I'm working in a job and I'm, I hope that that job leads to a book that gets published and gets sent out into the world. You know, I used to work at a children's bookstore before, you know, I started and I remember the thrill of reading all the books and getting the new books in, you know, from all the authors who I loved and dreaming of one day having one book on the shelf and how incredible that would be. And my first book was published while I was still working at the bookstore. So I got to like actually give that book to people, right? So the act of sharing is very much a part of the process, right? That's what I do. It's what you do. You know, you're, you're talking to people and sharing what you love about books, about reading, about what what parents can gain, what kids can gain from the act of reading together and, and, and talking about books together. So, so that act of sharing is very much part of why I do what I do. But like, mostly I just like write because I, I write about things I want to write about that I find interesting, which usually are not actually things kids would normally find interesting. Like the invention of Hugo Cabret was about French silent movies, you know, which is not a guaranteed bestseller in the children's <laughs> book world. And so, <laughs> you know, but, but my, my editor early on said to me, you know, if, cause everyone, I would, people would ask me what I was working on. I'd be like, oh, I'm looking for children about French silent movies. And I'd be like, that is a terrible idea. And my editor said, you know, if the main character cares about something and then your readers care about your main character, they'll also care about what the main character cares about. And so that, and that became very true for silent movies. Like so many kids wrote me after Hugo to say, oh my God, we love watching silent movies now. And we did a, we made a silent movie festival for the, you know, retirement community in our, in our town. And so, you know, Wonderstruck was about like the history of museums and deaf culture, you know, the Marvels was about the history of British theater. Like, like these are things that people often don't learn about till like graduate school, if they <laughs> learn about it at all. But I'm interested in it. So I find a way in for me. And because my main characters are usually 10 to 12 years old, that, you know, is generally why I think my books are for kids. Like, I'm I, again, like I'm not specifically writing for kids, even though, as I said, I'm very proud of the fact that they're my my main audience. It's just that the people who I think of to write stories about are 10 to 12 years old. So it makes sense that people who are that age mostly gravitate to that story, younger, older, but around that age. And so I'm writing about things that I love, but especially I think recognizing in Big Tree, like I'm also writing about struggles that I need to figure out for myself, right? Like I was talking about like the fight between the, the Merwin side of me and the Louise side of me. Right. So it's also a way to work through your own <laughs> your own issues in, in a lot of ways. But again, in a way that hopefully is something that people can relate to and, and that is universal because generally we're we're dealing within 
themes that are often, you know, bigger than just us, whatever thing we're grieving, whatever thing we're struggling with, whatever thing we don't know how to do, like generally we're not actually the only person dealing with those things. Maybe we have unique situations. We're all unique people. We all approach things uniquely. We all have unique families, but thematically other people are dealing with similar things. Very true. And there's no better way to connect than through the emotions and, you know, the very core of all of that. But why have you picked this overlay? So obviously your topics are very interesting and they come from deep interests and academic and intellectual and everything. But to overlay the emotional sort of separation like you were talking about earlier with a child or from the parent or even in Baby Monkey Private Eye, which I know I have to keep referencing because my son loves it so much. <laughs> like, you know, the, this quest to like find the 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 person you love and all of that or what happens when you get separated? Like, where did that piece come from? Like, is there something with your, like, did you do therapy on that part of it? (laughs) You know, I grew up in a very stable household. You know, my, my parents were very supportive of me and my brother and my sister. They always said they would support whatever it is we want to do when we grew up. And when I was really little, like five or six, you know, I loved art. And somehow when my brother was like six, he knew he wanted to be a brain surgeon. And my sister in kindergarten knew she wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. And that's what we all grew up to be. But I don't know, like we're talking very much about themes right now, but really when I'm writing, I'm not focused on themes. I'm focused on plot and character and like what happens next. Right. And when I finished Hugo, if you had asked me what that book was about, I would have said it's a book about a kid who lives in a train station who meets an old man who, you know, help each other. But, you know, a friend of mine is a theater director and he says it's the artist's job to make the work and it's the audience's job to tell them what it's about. Yep. And very early on when I was on tour for the book of Hugo, an adult reader came up to me and said, I love that Hugo is about how we make our own families. And I was like, it is? And I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) It is, right? Because that's what happens to Hugo. Like he, you know, ends up finding this family. You know, it's not his biological family because he's an orphan, but he he makes, he gets a sister. He gets essentially parental figures in Georges and Jean Meliez. And he's safe in a home at the end of that book. And I think that idea of like going out into the world, like we were talking before with Roots and Wings and, and making our own families it is just really central to my experience. And I think growing up as a queer kid and like coming out very late, like I was in my like mid to late twenties before I even came out, you know, it was, it was like discovering that like, oh my God, there are other people out here who have been experiencing this thing that I've been keeping secret that I thought was just mine. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it's like, oh, oh wow. Like I'm actually part of a culture. I'm part of a history you know, and that's why these, you know, sort of insane, horrific bands that are going on right now are so ultimately useless, except that they're going to hurt young people like that, that they're actively going to do. But what they're not going to do is make gay people not exist, right? Because we have existed through all of time. It, we have existed before there were names for us. And so you can't make us not exist. And the fantasy that like we only exist because we read about ourselves in a book is nuts 
because most of us, you know, of a certain age grew up in a world where it, there was no positive role model. There were no very few characters in books. There, there was no one saying it's okay, you know? And so that sense of like needing to find a community and, and whatever community you're in, there, there are people who agree with you. Right. Like there are people on your side. I met a librarian recently at a librarian conference who's in a state that's facing a lot of difficulties in book banning. And I said, what can we do? And she said, just talk about us, like just talk about libraries and the importance of libraries. And remember that even in a, a place where you feel like the entire community is ganging up against you, there are people in that community who support you. Sometimes they may not be as vocal because they might have to be at home taking care of their kids or whatever it is, but but there, but there is a community there. It's just sometimes it's a little harder to find them. And for young people, it's, it is going to make things more difficult in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, so we just hope that, you know, we can keep getting the message out that there, there are people out there who love you and support you and want you to be okay. Yes. I honestly can't even believe all this is happening. In the world. It's like, uh, it's, it's anyway, Brian, this has been so interesting. I truly think you are such a genius in so Uh, many ways. And it's an honor to talk to you and congratulations about big tree on big tree and everything that you're working on. And I'm just such a fan and uh, yeah, go forth and conquer. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for the work you do getting the word out into the world. Uh, It's really greatly appreciated. And it's so good to talk to you. You too. All All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom-to-serves-the-best-and-there's-no-better-place-to-shop-for-Mother's-day-than-Whole-Foods-Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Pr